Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And our New Testament reading is from the book of John, John 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. I wanted to ask if you you had to choose a tendency in your perception of God or your, your, your just sort of overall disposition towards God, would you say that you lean more towards seeing God as utterly unapproachable 
and scary and fiery, or the opposite, perfectly approachable, Jesus is my homeboy sort of thing. Which one do you tend towards? Uh, I would say probably most, most of the world, at least in the ancient and medieval world, tended towards the first. God was certainly scary, certainly the judge, and so they were racked with horrible uh, doubt, and, and their conscience could not imagine how anyone could ever make it to heaven. So maybe, maybe that's your disposition. Maybe that's the older generation among us maybe leans that way. Uh, so it's, it's good to have a multi-generational church as we do because we, we need both of these tendencies to sort of uh, help each other out. I would say that today, though, mostly our culture leans toward the second, right? God seems almost too approachable. Of course, I mean, God is just, he's a little bit like me, right? And so I should be able to talk to him when I want, and I think I can define him pretty well according to how I assume he must be. Uh, doesn't matter what his name may be or what he's like. I, I think I pretty much know. It's probably a fair assumption. Well, there's, there is something to both, but taken to their extremes, there's also something horribly detrimental, something fundamental that they both really deny of the gospel. That if we just say God is totally unapproachable and stop there, well, we have no hope, right? But if we say God is basically in our image, then we've also lost who God is and we've lost the purpose of the gospel. Well, we're going we're gonna to look at a psalm, I think, that leads us to consider why both are wrong, both are right in some ways, but both are ultimately wrong. And the gospel, as always, is better news than we thought. So let's pray and we'll jump in. God, we do praise you praise you for this day. We thank you that you have indeed welcomed us into your presence. We ask that you would speak, that we would ascend that seemingly insurmountable hill of the Lord and dwell in your presence. We pray for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the shepherd leaders and the pastors have uh, decided we're going to begin a mini-series in the Psalms, especially Psalms that are relevant to the Gospel of John. We have just finished the whole year in the Gospel of John last week, and so we're going to do a mini-series uh, with the Psalms, and then in the fall we're going to begin another mini-series uh, in total Christ, which is what we, how we sort of name and describe our spirituality uh, at our church, and then we're going to walk through Ephesians uh, in the fall. And so we're beginning with a few different psalms this morning, and I hope that you have uh, uncovered the treasure trove of the psalms. The psalms are incredible. They are oftentimes prayers, 
Sometimes it's prayers. In our passage, we see prayers mixed in with probably something used in the temple service. There's just like back and forth ceremonial uh, actions going on, just like we do in our call to worship. Sometimes they're complaints and crying out to God, incredibly honest expressions. I, I have to say, I really can't imagine going through my own uh, divorce and just the intensity of the emotions without the Psalms, without seeing what is it like to wrestle with God. They're, they are incredible. So if you think that prayer is boring and stodgy, then surely you haven't read the Psalms. And if you think that a life in God is, means that you have to clean yourself up and then you can go to God in prayer, then you surely haven't read the Psalms because they are not afraid of being honest and real and yet also aware of who they are addressing. So Psalm 24. Psalm 24 likely written by David himself, as we see there at the very beginning, a psalm of David, and could be from 2 Samuel 6, which we'll come to later. But Psalm 24 starts us where we ought to start, starting with God. First things first. may sound obvious, but it is definitely not obvious. It's not obvious to us, I don't think. It's not obvious to our spiritual lives, that we should let God start. Let God be God. We need to remember who it is that we are addressing, who it is that we are talking about. And so let's start with first things first, God himself. First verse, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It actually just starts in the Hebrew with, to the Lord, Le Yahweh, like Lechaim, Le Yahweh, to the Lord, everything belongs. The earth and all that fills it, all that dwells, all people belong to the Lord. And if you just stop and consider that, it's quite an incredible statement that God is the owner if you will, of everything. As Psalm 50 says it, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Every person that you have ever encountered, every person in this room belongs to God. You have never met someone who does not. God is that incredible, that glorious, that big. And we're told not only who he is, we're told what he has done. He has made us. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. He is the one who is the creator of all. So not just everything belongs to him. He has his his handiwork in all of us. Man. He has established it all. 
provided for all of us in ways that we often, let's be honest, take totally for granted, right? This is very hard, I think, for a lot of us to believe and to realize just how present God ought to be in our lives, in our mindset. Something happened, I think, in our culture with the rise of modern science God started to get pushed out of our purview. But there's nothing about understanding the genetic code or understanding how our brains work in a better way. There's nothing about the growth of science that should do that. There's nothing logical that says because we can understand better how trees grow, that that means God is less involved. We just know more about the mechanisms that God uses. So it's hard, I think, for us to realize, yes, indeed, God does feed you. We take our food for granted. Maybe we are willing to thank the grocer or the farmer, but it's not just them. It's God through the farmer and through the grocer. We certainly do not belong just to ourselves. It's often the case that farmers themselves, right, are, are actually more spiritual because they're so aware of how dependent they have to be. They don't, they don't know how the seeds work. Maybe the seed will grow this time, maybe it won't. But poor farmers up the Connecticut River, they know they're dependent and they know they are not in control. It's hard for us to appreciate this, I think. We think we belong to ourselves and can do what we want. What would it mean for you to try to rewrite this narrative? To try and restructure how you think, how you process? I think a lot of it comes from simply just meditating on God's word, meditating on his psalms. We don't just need to know intellectually that the earth is the Lord's. We need to Feel it. Appreciate it. Try to love that truth, not just know it. What would that mean for you to meditate more on that truth, try to get it deeper into your heart? I know for some of us, it means encountering nature in, in, in its largeness that reminds us of just how big God is. We're My family, we're going to go out to Lake Erie this week, and it's not the sound, but it looks like an ocean until you taste it, and it's not salty, but it is huge, and you are reminded that you are small. When we have these weather disasters, it's like the last thing left in the modern world, doesn't it seem like, that will humble us that will remind us that we are not God. So we always need to start with this simple fact that God is God, capital G. And if that is true, then moving from verses 1 and 2 into verse 3, we need to realize that only God can decide his access. 
Only God can define his path. If God really is this sort of God, then what does it mean to come into his presence? Well, it means to go up a mountain. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? When Israel would go to worship, they always had to go up. They always had to go up. The temple literally was on a mountain or a hill. And it's all over the Psalms. It's all over the prophets. The temple is on a mountain. So I think when Jesus says, you can say to this mountain, move and it'll move if you pray in my name, he's saying, you don't have to go to the temple anymore because you can pray in my name. Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 2, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 99, I exalt, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. The famous funeral verse, Isaiah 25, on this mountain there will be this great feast where I will swallow up death forever. It is on a mountain. It's where God dwells. He dwells on a mountain and it is seemingly very hard to ascend. But it's not hard because it's Everest. All right, Jerusalem doesn't have humongous mountains. It's hard because God is holy, which is what we have in verse 4. He answers the question. It's not rhetorical. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, that's the one who can ascend. The one who is pure in heart who is clean and holy. It's, it, it's almost like he's, he's summarizing the Ten Commandments, the one who has not committed idolatry, the one who does not swear deceitfully, does not take the Lord's name in vain. That's the one who can ascend. Now remember, if God is the one, if only God can define his access, then he is saying the one who has access is the one who is like me, who is holy like me. As he says to Israel, be ye holy, for I am holy. So there is only one way up through holiness, through perfect holiness. So this is like ascending a mountain, but there are not many ways up. There are not many ways up. I think in our culture, if we if we assume that God is so incredibly approachable and accessible and we sort of make him in our image, it's because we think there are lots of ways up the mountain, right? We think that we can sort of define it in many different ways, but they're all going to the same place. That assumes you know who God is. That assumes you have this aerial view of the mountain and saying it's the same mountain. But if God hasn't said that, then we can't either. I don't know if you've ever tried, tried to climb a mountain that's not the right path. I tried to do it up the wrong side of West Rock. I tried to, uh, it was ugly. West Rock is very rocky. And 
I left with some scratches and cuts and bruises. Don't try it. It's not as bad as scaling up East Rock. People have tried to scale up the face of East Rock. Don't do that. They now have signs to not do that. But we want to ascend the way that God has told us we are to ascend. So we have this question that is seemingly answered by saying we can ascend through holiness and then we'll receive a blessing and we'll be righteous. And then from verses 6 to 7, what happens? There is this sudden interjection, seemingly out of nowhere, and it reminds me of parts in the New Testament where it's very hard news and then all of a sudden, but God. You're dead in your sin, but God. You're like the walking dead, but God. Out of nowhere, verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, the gates of the temple, the gates of the precious city of Jerusalem, Zion. Now they can lift up their heads and their gates because the king of glory is coming. You see, this was probably used in some kind of responsive ceremony. Maybe a march, maybe in the temple itself, where you have one person saying, who is this king of glory? And maybe the congregation is responding, the Lord. The Lord, the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Back and forth, you have this. It's probably coming from David when he finally brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. This is going back to 2 Samuel 6. We don't have time to do all the details, but it was after a military victory when Israel defeats the Philistines, takes back the Ark of the Lord. But David is a little afraid because people who touch the Ark unauthorized die on the spot. So David doesn't want to take the Ark yet, and he gives it to this guy named Obed-Edom. And then it goes pretty well for him. And then David says, all right, let's take it. Let's bring it to the household of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. This is when later Michal condemns him for dancing. But David is celebrating that the king of glory is finally coming. The Lord of hosts is finally entering the temple. Hallelujah. David knows that this is not a thing to take lightly. The Lord of hosts is a military term. It's the hosts of his army. The hosts of angels' armies. It's not that he's good at hospitality. He's not hosting people. It's a host of armies. The Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabbath, he is the one who is coming. The king of glory. Of, of power and might, of weightiness, is finally coming. And David is rejoicing. But surely, surely we are meant to see Jesus all over this psalm. All 
over this psalm. We have a much better assurance than David. If you haven't read past that part in the Old Testament, it doesn't continue to go well for Israel. Well, it doesn't take very many chapters for disaster and strife and murder and adultery to eat up the house of David and generations that follow him. But Jesus does finally come. And surely we are meant to see in this passage what happens on Palm Sunday. The King of glory finally is coming. The crowds gather in John 12. The crowds gather and they are celebrating Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the King of Israel saying this about Jesus. Some people speculate that Psalm 24, which would have been read on the first day of the week, according to some rabbis, was being read in the temple the time of Jesus walking into this earth, riding into the city on his donkey. The king of glory is coming. Lift up your heads, O gates, for the one who descended is now ascending. Which is why I had us read John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot ascend the mountain of the Lord. The hill. If you are not born of the water or of the Spirit, born anew from heaven, born again, as it says, then you cannot ascend. But no one this is Jesus talking. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended. The Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus' ascension, we see throughout the Gospel of John, begins on the cross where he is lifted up on the cross to draw all people to himself. This is why we can say that Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament. That's one of the amazing things that Jesus says. It's not just a couple isolated verses. It's that the whole thing pointed to him. So we have every right to read Psalm 24 and say, yes, we can celebrate in the same way because I can ascend the hill of the Lord in Jesus. Remember, it is humanly possible to ascend the hill of the Lord. How? If you are pure in heart, if you have clean hands, haven't committed idolatry, who has done that? There is a human who has done that in our place, and it is Jesus. So, once Jesus ascends, we can follow after. We can, as he says in Hebrews 2, he is bringing many sons to glory. He is leading us in this train like captives, as a, as a military victor would, leading his captives up to the hill of the Lord. Now, notice why we had to start where we started. If we let God define who he is, how we get into his presence, it's much better news. Because we're told, yes, there is only one way up. 
and it's offered to all of you. You can stop climbing. You can stop trying to tread your way through some other path you don't even know is there. You don't have to do that. There is only one way up, but we have to follow the one who first came down to bring us up, to drag us up, kicking and screaming. It doesn't mean that Jesus is minimizing the mountain. He's not making it easy. He keeps it just as hard, which is why we had to have the perfect, innocent, human Son of God live and die in our place. Once that has happened, we can be sure we are walking up the mountain of the Lord. So only God gets to define who he is. Only God gets to give us access. Then only God gets to make us like him. Remember, there's only way up, only one way up the mountain through holiness, because God is holy. And so, verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, that's what God is making us into. People who are like that, who will be granted his blessing and his righteousness. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He goes up on a mountain. That's not uh, accidental. He goes up on a mountain, sits down, and begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a, for, to the, what is it? For, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is what it means to belong to Jesus, to have a life lived in Jesus, to live on the mountain. We stumble, we fall a lot back down, and we stop following Jesus, but he does invite us to live on the mountain with him. Part of what it means to live in Jesus, we see in John 17. And if you're wondering, if you're, if you, when you try to pray or if you're wondering, like, what does spiritual growth look like for me? I feel kind of stagnant or plateaued. Where should I go? You can go to Psalm 24. You can go to John 17, and you will see incredible promises that surely you are not fully grasping. John 17 may be one of the most stupendous chapters in the scripture. Jesus is praying. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What? But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. To live in Jesus, to, have, to live on the mountain, is to have Jesus' joy fulfilled in us. This is what he offers us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, 
and I in you, and then he keeps going, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Remember, he's the king of glory. That they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He is making us like himself. He is making us like Jesus. So when we wonder, how could I ever ascend the mountain? We do have to start there. We do have to start with verses 1 and 2 and 3. God is God. If we don't start there, we're going to make God in our image. And we're going to think it's either easy or it's absolutely impossible and both deny the gospel. But in Jesus, we start there, we don't stop, and we realize that Jesus has descended in order that he may bring us up and make us pure in heart. Make us poor in spirit. Make us like David, dancing and rejoicing because he gets to join with the king of glory in his presence. On that mountain where death is swallowed up, peace and righteousness reign where we are sharing even in the love and joy of Jesus himself. I hope that you experience this. And I know that you can all experience it. We can all experience it more and more. Let that be our prayer as we come to him at his table. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.